Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Morning, everybody. Isn't it a great day? Lovely to be um, here with you this morning. How many of you have ever been to um, Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain? The majority. Um, and it's worth, it's worth a visit. Um, do you know where that great um, outer ring of stones came from? I mean, they're, they're four tons in weight. They're two meters in length. They came from South Wales, apparently, um, dragged somehow, they reckon, about 200 miles. And there's that inner ring of stones. They're 25 tons in weight. They've only been um, shifted about 20 miles from the Marlborough Downs. But can you imagine, four to 5,000 years ago, the thousands of men that would have been involved in cutting and dragging and probably floating, rolling those massive, huge, heavy stones, all that teamwork and effort to create what? We don't really know. Was it an observatory? Was it a burial site? Was it a a temple? We just don't know. No one's very sure. But it was the product and still standing today, the product of breathtaking vision and astonishing um, technical engineering skills from all that uh, time ago. What we're thinking about um, this morning, uh, today, uh, is teamwork and faith and trust and effort over the course of centuries in order to construct something for God that is actually far more breathtaking and long-lasting than even something like uh, Stonehenge. A temple made out of people, filled with the Spirit of God, people from every race and language and tongue um, around the globe, something that will last forever. This is the big vision of the Bible. Now, this morning, um, that is just my head, we seem to have been uh, looking in all kinds of directions. We've sung a number of different songs about the love of God, your love is amazing, and where is love, and here is love, and, and love divine, and so on. Then we've been looking at just a machine gun fire of, of pictures of physical suffering and emotional need. We've been praying for Nepal. We've been thinking about uh, students in 25 to 30 different countries studying a video that would open up for them questions to do with what is God like? How do we make sense of all this? Because probably like me, your mind has been darting about. I'm, you know, from one five minutes to the next, I'm not quite sure where I'm, I'm heading. And what I want to do is try and link all these different kaleidoscopic impressions and needs and opportunities and prayers together into the big theme, the big story of the Bible. Because this that we're thinking about 
this morning, and we're starting, as we've said, a, a new series running over the next four weeks, is actually the big idea that is at the very heart of, of what the Bible is, is all about. And instead of looking at one passage, as we normally do here on a Sunday morning, what we're going to be doing in each of these next um, three, today and, and the next three, is look at a number of key ideas to which many other things in life relate and watch those ideas grow in Scripture. So that what starts perhaps as a very apparently small idea uh, in the book of Genesis has grown by the time you get through to the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, it has grown into something huge and far-reaching and something to which our lives must relate and, in one sense, be controlled by. The call to God's people to be a missionary people, to be responding to needs in school, to be picking up uh, modern techniques like DVDs, to be concerned for what's going on in places like Nepal. The call to God's people to be a people like that, a people of compassion and vision and insight and action, didn't simply start with the day of Pentecost, where, which we look on as um, something of the birthday of the church. True that Peter, the apostle, stood up on the day of Pentecost and uh, he started to declare that what was happening that day was something that God had prophesied a long time before. In these last days, he said to all those thousands gathered, I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord, on all people, all nations, all languages and tribes. I will do it. Actually, that that he was declaring that day had been the big idea from the very beginning. You find it right throughout the Bible. It is because God is a missionary God. I can sit there this morning and my mind start to fill up and overflow with all kinds of bits and pieces. Uh, it is amazing how God actually carries the needs of all those people and all those situations in his heart constantly. He is a missionary God. He always has been. As I said, missions is the great theme of the Bible. You read Moses. You read David in the Psalms. You read the great prayer of Solomon at the dedication of that wonderful temple that he built, which was later then destroyed. You read the heart cry of the prophets in the Old Testament. All the way through, it is that God's love and God's grace would be poured out and received and known uh, right, right throughout the world. This is the thread, uh, if you like, upon which all the other pearls of the great events and the characters, the battles even, the wonderful revelations, they all hang on this thread of mission. If you go back to the Garden of Eden in memory, Genesis 2 and 3, you see there that human beings, ah, we were created for friendship with our Creator. I'm just looking over there and thinking of yeah, the little tiny getting bigger all the time. He started very big, but he's he's growing. I've walked up and down past him twice. Is he the youngest member of the congregation? Probably. I looking around. No one else has been producing recently. He is created. That that little baby who can't even speak. He can do. A number of other things that involve cleaning up and patience. He can't. He is created for friendship with God. 
This is one of the great things in the book of Genesis that distinguishes us from animals. We are actually designed to be able to know God and enjoy him and appreciate his love and live in obedient cooperation with him. And as soon as Adam forgot that and turned his back on the love of God and the purposes that God had for him, God then came to rescue. God, the missionary God, didn't say, well, that's it, you know, on you go, boy. God came to rescue Adam and Eve, but the rescue process involved leaving the garden and going out into the world. See, what a lovely, wonderful, comfortable place Eden had been made to be. It was designed for human beings. But if God is going to teach us faith and obedience, and likeness to himself, he was going to have to take Adam and his wife out of the garden. Throughout the whole of my time of thinking about this and preparing for this morning, I've had this picture in, in my mind. I can't get away from it. It relates to everything that I want to say. And it is of a nice, cozy womb. Warm and comfortable. But if you remain there too long, you die. We were meant for the challenge of the outside world. For responsibilities, for making choices, for fighting battles, for achieving things, for enduring pain. And God constantly wants to move us out of the, the womb of, of our own comfort towards responsibility and choice and battle and the possibility of pain. This is the constant choice in life. Womb or the real world. And we always try to make nests for ourselves. You look back over your life, you will see that you, you've constantly done it. We, we try to preserve around ourselves the comfortable and the familiar and to establish our security, to create an environment for ourselves that calls actually, as the days go by, for less faith and less risk because we kind of work to eliminate those things from our lives. We actually uh, do this all the time. Some of you want might and church to be a womb like that. God says no. The great process of life is that God will move us constantly out of the wombs that we make into the real world of fight and battle and responsibility and achievement and becoming like him. And if we stay as we are, we'll die. God says, I've got greater things for you to do and, and to understand. Let me show you that as we um, move through scripture. If you want a Bible, I think a number of them have probably been given out already. I, I noticed the window ledge where I put them all out carefully is, is, is gone. But if you want a Bible... If you haven't got one, put up your hand. Because I'm going to refer to one or two passages. We thought of the Garden of Eden. Now the call of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, the first few verses, we read this. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And then God moves into poetry. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who curse you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, this is the beginning of the, the Hebrew people, the people of God. And there's the call. God says, come, trust me, journey with me. In verse 1, you can see it there. Leave and go. Leave what you're familiar with and make a new home with me. But God accompanies that call with a promise. Always does. If God says, now come, I want you to step out, out of the womb, into something bigger. Put your faith in me. He gives us immediately, and you can see it all the way through the Bible. He will give you, almost at that point, promises to go with his call. I will make you a new nation. I will give you a new land. I will honour you with a new name and reputation. I saw that film Troy recently. All, all that slaughter and battle simply because one or two ancient Greeks wanted to make a reputation for themselves. And here's Abraham going the other way. I'll trust you to make my name and reputation. And you can't say that his trust has been exactly uh, let down over the years, can you? God fulfilled his promise. There is so much blessing and protection for you, says the Lord. But the whole point, did you see, there uh, in verse 3, the whole point of this is, I want to bless you so that you will be a blessing to other people. We are blessed, wonderfully blessed, in order to be a blessing. God's people from the start are a people with purpose. God has been so kind to us. God has been so kind to his people around the world. So that you may lay down your lives for others. So that you may be a blessing. So that you may reach out and meet other people's needs and so on. And there are people all over the world, we've thought and prayed for some of them this morning, um, who are possessed of the same dream and the same sense of calling. We were thinking a few months ago um, of the Russians. And the poverty that some of them live in, but they pray, they, they long, they commit themselves, they, that they long to be part of, of this growing movement of people who are filled with the Spirit of God, who are becoming like God, and who are serving in, in the nations of the world. These Nepalis that we've been praying for this morning, that John and Mary led us in thinking about, they want to preach peace, and they want to establish communities of reconciliation within a country that is falling apart in civil war. Why is that? Because of the love of God and because of the grace of God. I'm going out in um, a few weeks to Malaysia, to a conference there, a missions conference in Kuala Lumpur. And I got an email yesterday, that was day before something. Um, I think over 50% of the people coming to that conference are Korean. The Korean church is sending hundreds and hundreds of not only young, but some older men and women out nowadays in, in world mission. Trish and I were down in Australia in, um, over Easter. And a very strange thing happened to me at the end of a meeting. Um, a great big, you know, Aussie blokes are, they're not sort of normally emotional. They, they'll, uh, they'll pour beer over you. They will abuse you. Uh, they will beat you up. Uh, they, they will try and crush you into the ground with sport. But this bloke came up to me, creepy, he's as big as you there, came up and, and embraced me. And his eyes filled up. And I thought, oh, we've got a funny one here. And then out came a story which I, I hadn't heard. I'd been preaching in the same place three years before. His family was in all kinds of mess, really. <laughs> there were stresses and tensions um, between the husband and wife and between 
the older and younger generation. And I think they'd even been sitting uh, in one of those meetings in different parts of the auditorium. You know, it, it's a bad sign when husbands and wives um, sit quite a long way apart. Hello, Trish, who you, went back there. <laughs> she was on duty this morning. But <clears throat> unbeknown to me, God spoke to them that day. And they had an extraordinary day following when husband spoke to wife and they said, both of them independently, I think God is wanting something new for us and calling us to something different. I think we must give up our job and commit ourselves to his service for world mission. And then lo and behold, their son came around whom they hadn't been getting on with very well. And he, he said, Dad, I don't know what's going on, but I think I need to leave the business. And, I think God, and it turned out, to cut the whole long story short, the family has been for the last two years in northern Thailand running an orphanage for about 500 children, the majority of whom are HIV positive. And it is this commitment to mission that has completely sorted out the strains and tensions in the family. Very often we are living with too small motives. I mean, they're just too tiny. And so we fight over little things because we've got far too much space for being selfish. And these folk have started to live for the big vision of Scripture. And it's, it's remarkable. They are starting to develop stories and, uh, of, of people apparently being cured of, of this particular disease. I don't know all the medical details and don't know how much uh, more needs testing to demonstrate that. But God is, is calling us to the big vision. And he is saying to the Russians and the Nepalis and, and the Australians and to us, to all of us the world over, if I save you, and make you my children. You must live in a way that demonstrates now my love and grace to as many others as possible. Blessed to be a blessing. You are made in my image. Now live like the original. And I put it like that. And then when you live, you look through the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, you find the same thing again and again. There was the prophet Jonah, for instance. Um, called to go to Nineveh to preach to those horrible Assyrians who had been in the regular habit of beating up Israel. And he ran in the opposite direction. He went off to Spain. Nice, nice comfortable Spain. I was about as far from Assyria as he could possibly get. And God sent that monster uh, who swallowed him up and then vomited him up. And he finished up back in, in Nineveh. If you were to look into... Um, the story of the exile, because eventually Israel was so disobedient that God said, enough, I'm, I'm going to march you in chains back to where you originally came from, that part of, of northern Mesopotamia. And Jeremiah the prophet has a word for the exiles <clears throat> away up there in Babylon. And he writes them a letter. Let me read to you from Jeremiah, 4, uh, Jeremiah 29, sorry, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Because there they were, fretting, looking forward to coming back, didn't like where they were. Jeremiah's letter from the Lord says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then verse 10. This is what the Lord says. 
When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Wherever you are, you're mine. And even if you've been carried off into exile, even if you're not in your ultimate home, I want you to live as a blessing to the people there. It won't last forever. Seventy years and I'll bring you back. But where you are now, where you are today and tomorrow, where God has put you at the moment, in your business responsibilities and your work, your opportunities now, it ain't permanent, but be a blessing now. Whether you're in retirement, whether you're in hospital, whether you're just here for six months, whether you're a student and you'll be gone shortly. This was the word of the Lord to the exiles. Be a blessing. In 70 years' time, I'm going to want to bring you back to Jerusalem. But while you are where you are, live out the promise that I gave originally to Abraham. Israel used to forget this regularly down through the centuries. And God had to send prophets and sometimes speak through kings to remind them again and again. I mean, think of that famous word from, from Isaiah in, in chapter 56, verse 7. My house, says the Lord, this is the temple built in Jerusalem, my house is to be a place of prayer for who? For all nations. So how dare you start to get up on, on your your high horse and keep the Gentiles back and start to be exclusive. I want my house to be a house of prayer for all nations. So when Christ came at the very height of the Roman Empire, Israel's profound problem was, was not its lack of political freedom. It wasn't the suffering that some of the nation were, were going through. They were, it's true, crushed under the heel of the Roman army. Their most profound problem when Christ came was their deep ignorance of God's plan of salvation. The true enemy was not Rome, but it was an illusion about God that they had started to teach and encourage other in, that they could somehow retain their covenant relationship with God and at the same time ignore and even defy his purposes. It cannot be done. And yet this is the great danger that faces the church, particularly the church in, in the more comfortable parts of the world. You can see it in the early church. The early Christians in Jerusalem were starting to settle down and make nests and get comfortable in the womb. So God allowed persecution. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, 1 to 3, in that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's astonishing. All the Christians, the thousands that had been converted on the day of Pentecost, all driven out. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
and Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. See, the church had been brought to birth at Pentecost. And then the Lord says, oh, 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 look at them. Look at them. They're getting back into the womb again. <laughs> I think a few more contractions would be in order. And so the, con- <laughs> the contractions of persecution. <laughs> Sorry, there's women looking at me. They, what do you know? <laughs> it just occurred to me yesterday. that, But he, he, he allowed <clears throat> persecution to come in order to provoke them out again and send them on their way. You see, persecution and opposition makes missionaries of us. How does it do that? When you're going through persecution, a couple of things happen. One is you ask, why am I going through this? What is all this for? And the second thing that happens is that it freshens up our love for Christ. Because it is for him. The Lord himself says, they'll hate you, but they don't really hate you. It's me they're hating. But they'll express it by hating you. And it usually has the effect, and you'll notice this in persecuted churches, countries around the world. Persecution causes a freshening up love for Christ amongst the persecuted. It is Satan's weapon that always backfires. Because, you see, missions isn't for us just a task. It isn't just a job, just a duty that we've been laid lumbered with and we have to to get on with it. We are to be the people who love the Lord, who worship him because we love him, who love him because we know him. And because we love him, then we want others to know about him. Our whole life as Christians is to flow out of not duties and regulations, but love and actually knowing him. We obey the teaching because we love the teacher. I want you to read again, or I'm going to read with you, <clears throat> that great commission at the end of Matthew that has already been referred to this morning. <clears throat> it comes in, well, if you're in the church Bible, it's page 1000. Matthew 28. And I want you to notice something that isn't often brought out when this passage is read and mentioned. Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen. Just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then running down to verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then <clears throat> Matthew puts down his pen, final full stop, and finished. <clears throat> See, the, at the start they were full of very human emotions and all mixed up. There was fear, terrified, what new events were breaking upon them. There was joy, and yet it didn't seem to last very long. It came in little surges. There are doubts mentioned. I'm confused. I'm uncertain what's going on. And yet there's expectancy. All this muddle in their head. But then one thing becomes clear. When they see Jesus, they start to worship him. They realize he's done it. He's risen from the dead. He's alive. He's here. It's worshippers that the Lord sends into his harvest field. In Acts chapter 13, uh, when this had settled down into the church and the church in Antioch were about to send out missionaries, we read that they were five leaders of them mentioned, prophets and teachers in the church. And as they worshipped the Lord, as they prayed, as they fasted, they ministered to the Lord, the Lord then said, send out Barnabas and Saul for the work. That's the kind of person God is looking for. True worshippers. Remember Jesus talking to that woman in John chapter 4. And she says, uh, he says there that the Father is looking for those that worship in spirit and in truth. The Spirit of God is moving across the nations and the churches looking for those that worship in spirit and truth because he wants to send them out. Uh, so here in Matthew you have this famous commissioning. In the Greek it's just one command. The big long sentence from verse 20 onwards. But it's actually one command which simply says, make disciples of all nations. There's lots of sub-clauses bolted on around here and there. But basically, make disciples of all nations. That's the job of the church. That's the work of those that have begun to, to worship. It's preceded by an astonishing statement of fact. All authority, said Jesus, has been given to me. He is the king of all of God's kingdom. There's an issue of his authority here for us. And then it's followed by an astonishing promise. I am going to be with you to the very end of the age. Wherever you go, whatever you face, whatever happens, I am with you. He is with Christian refugees. He is with people who are fortunate enough to have jobs. He is with people who are on the run. He is with people who are in prison. He's with those that are living in fear of their lives in, in countries of great persecution. I am going to be with you. This command, when you think about it, to go make disciples of all nations, is absolutely astonishing when you think of the, the track record of the people to whom it was addressed. These 11 men, the runaways, the failures, the, the liars, hopeless cases. And yet it is, for people like us and them, the Lord's statement of fact and the Lord's promises regarding the future that make this impossible dream possible and inviting. I am God, he says, and I'm going with you. But you will need to come out of the womb. You will need to hear the challenge. You will need to be stretched in your faith. Go, baptize, and teach. Those Three actions are the inescapable heart of mission. Nothing else is central 
the going and teaching and baptizing. Go. I mean, it's no longer come to Jerusalem, come to our temple. Uh, the temple used to have, it's true, <coughs> a very special court for the Gentiles, a place where they could come and gather. It was the largest courtyard in that area. And they were supposed to be able there to benefit from some of the blessing of God poured out on the Jews, splashing over on them, the lucky Gentiles. <laughs> in fact, the Jews tended to use that court for selling animals and exchanging money and, uh, and doing all that stuff, which is why Jesus cleared it and quoted that prophecy in Isaiah. My, my house <clears throat> is to be a house of prayer for all nations. No longer do we have to go to Jerusalem because the whole direction has changed. It's not come anymore. It's go. It's go because the great sacrifice has been made. There's no longer any need for it. God has a people now filled with his spirit that the worshippers must go. Worship and go. Go to your workplace. Go to your, your schools and your offices. Always in a lively spirit of thanksgiving for what the Lord has done. The missionary people of God. Go baptizing. This was a well-known symbolic act. It, wasn't, it didn't start with Christians um, after Pentecost. It wasn't exclusive to Christians. It was something that was widely known in the time. And it signified cleansing, and it signified initiation, and it signified commitment. Those three things. Go. Teach people. Preach the gospel. Find ways. And enable them to come into the Christian community. Baptized believers. And teach them. Because it's the, it's the word of God that makes the people of God. As people respond to the word of God. You can't, you can't live on bread alone. You can't live on, on potatoes. You can't live on, on the money that you get at the end of the month or whenever you get it. You, you simply can't live on those kind of stuff. You need the word of God to be truly alive. And people need to go preach, teach the word of God that will get you out of the womb. And I tell you this, without the word of God regularly flushing through our lives, we will have a constant tendency to crawl back into the womb, a womb of our own making, of our own security, and of our own comfort, and thinking me first. And I don't want anything bigger and wider and more challenging. The word of God that will make the difference between those two. Could might and church become for us a, a womb, a nice, cozy, not very challenging, and in the end, constricting place? Of course it could. Who would think otherwise? Of course it could. This is the constant tendency that you see throughout the Bible. Hence the challenge to be the missionary people of God. What can we do? Uh, I, I, my time is running away from me. Um, I'm sorry about that. But what can we do um, here at Mighton to become more world Christians living here in the heart of England? Here we are about as far away from the sea as you possibly can get. <laughs> how do we, how do we, I, I wrote down, I think, nine or ten people. What I was going to do was walk around and, and get some of your, well, have any of you got suggestions? How, how do we improve? I'm not going to spend long on taking suggestions because I don't think we've got time. And I've got all my list. But one or two suggestions. How do we live as world Christians in the light of this biblical vision Coming here Sunday by Sunday and belonging to our house groups and living our lives. We've got our bills to pay and we've got our jobs to do and we've got our responsibilities. But how do we live as world Christians like that without it becoming just a womb? Any? Love our neighbours. Go and stand at your front door and look up and down the street and pray for them. Yes? Thank you. Any other? Praying for them? 
taking what opportunity the disciplines of work might allow. Yes. And another suggestion? Whispering begins. Members of our own family, yes. Praying regularly and faithfully for them. How many of you have members of your own family, let's say, you know, brothers and sisters, fathers, children, who are not believers? See, most of us, most of us, at the end of our service today, I want to pray for them. Can I run through some of these other things and then we just end quickly? Otherwise, the Sunday school teachers will kill me. Which wouldn't be a great contribution to world mission. <laughs> Let's pray for our children. Pray them out into mission. Or at least some of them. I said this before, you, some of you might like to see them go next week. <laughs> when they're ready. May, may the Lord take some of our kids. Wouldn't it be terrific if coming out of our Sunday schools and youth work, there were people who were going to be at the cutting edge in some way or other of Christian service and impact. Secondly, I think we ought to, all of us, think this through. There's no bondage or legalism here, but I think we ought to be thinking about setting aside, if you don't do it already, a definite amount of money <clears throat> regularly. As a church, I look back over times when we have um, gathered together, we've given sums of money for church planting and building in Nepal. I mean, we gave money once for a load of bicycles in Gabon so that pastors could get about. We've given money for Bibles in in Kazakhstan, we've, we've, we've given, last year, was it, or the year before, for famine relief in Malawi. When was it we did that, Dave? You, 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 two years ago, you and John went out. Um, this is terrific, and I think all of us ought to be thinking this through, um, giving regularly out of what the Lord has given to us. Thirdly, hospitality to overseas students. Sunday lunch, Saturday lunch, do stuff, <laughs> it really couldn't get uh, more definite from the Lord. You, you would pray about missions, says, right, right, Lord, I'm going to bring you, you know, some Chinese people, some African people, some Mexican people, <laughs> and sit them amongst you. They even sit near the front so you can all see them. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be uh, thinking more of what we can do to pray and help and encourage. What about offering skills in retirement? <clears throat> I'm mindful of, of what does with frontiers, you see. Retired, <laughs> found a job that takes on even more time. It's wonderful, this retirement business, isn't it? You, you work 70 hours a week for frontiers. A cutting-edge mission uh, in the Muslim world. Now, if the Lord gives us time, you're all going to finish up retired. Some of you are getting there quickly, others more slowly. i got a birthday coming up, it makes me think I, I haven't got long to go, you know. I'm, I'm what am I going to do in that kind of period? We, we need to, I mean, there can be hospitality ministries, there can be building ministries, there can be computing ministries, you can count me out from that. There's in a, an accountancy ministry which is just greatly helping. World mission. These sort of third stage of life people. Before you sink into decrepitude totally, I'm not looking at anybody in particular. <laughs> Give what time you have, because we're all nowadays much more healthy when we reach 65 than used to be the case even two generations ago. That's another thing the Lord has done. Why don't we dream of what we can do in, in that area? There's mission trips. Teams have gone out from this church to Ukraine. They've gone to Nepal. 
people have gone to Africa, medical electives in Africa and so on. Uh, some of you have gone on some of these things and others ought to be thinking about it. It's part of having mission in the bloodstream of being a, a, a church of world Christians living here and yet taking this message seriously. Some of you support the Gideons. Some of you are members of the Gideons. I remember two years ago, we went to Novosibirsk. Amazing trip. Giving out, what, 50,000 Bibles. And I remember still his moving stories of going from bed to bed in a, in a hospital, in a military base. A lot of those guys dying, perhaps have died of AIDS. And tears in their eyes as they receive scriptures, the very word of life. Well, that, that isn't actually, you know, a very difficult thing to do or to organize. And yet we ought to be behind these kind of things in in prayer. Just prayer support in our, in our churches, because sometimes that's all we can do. And we, we say that, and it kind of diminishes it, but it's not. It's terrific. I was stuck in a conference in Bulgaria in some wretched old trades union, emptied hotel, talking to a group of students. And every evening, at about five o'clock in the evening, there was a little tinkle, 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 and bells, and, and the goats would come by. And the kids, there were sort of eight, seven, eight, nine years old, that had been out in the fields all day, were bringing the goats and the sheep back. And my heart went out to them, and I used to sort of stand on the balcony and just, and they didn't know who I was, but I prayed, Lord, somehow. They maybe they're not going to school, they maybe never learned to read, I don't know whether they ever listen to the radio, but somehow, Lord, get the gospel through to these goat, sheep and goat children that walk by in these mountains. When we go on holiday, when we, when we fly over places, we can pray that God's word would be, would be known. We can correspond, there's email. I want to challenge you to, to develop and sustain an interest in just one, one place and find out about what goes on there. Some of you go as businessmen occasionally to other cities. Well, you could, you could make a connection with a pastor in that city. You could phone him when you're there. You could say, how can I pray for you? How are you doing? It's just part of putting our lives on, on the line practically. If we sustain an interest in one place, remember years ago, uh, there was a fellow I was talking in Northern Ireland and he got recruited into missions somehow or other and, and he went to Pakistan. He's a single man, it's true, which makes probably life easier for him now. But he's in his 40s. He goes every year back to Pakistan. He keeps a big map of Pakistan in his house. I was in his house a couple of weeks ago. And he's praying for people in Pakistan. He's giving. He's kind of involved with that country. You could look through the you know, the supplements in the paper. Sometimes you have these great big spreads in the travel pages. Yeah, some of you, like, Jackie's thinking, oh, I'd like, a, I'd like an interest in the Bahamas or somewhere. Wherever it, you, you pick it up, start to find out what are the challenges? What does Operation World say? How can I pray for that place? Uh, start to have that place in a little bit of your, your praying bloodstream. Missions is the big theme of the Bible. We want to to think out how that applies. We want to live in the light of that. Even though we might be in the sort of situation exactly that Jeremiah was writing his letter to. No, you work. You, you get on with your job where you are. But don't think it's forever. Live as a blessing where you are. But be people of vision and initiative and ideas and creativity so that we, greatly blessed as we are, live as a blessing to other people, to the very ends of the earth. That's the challenge of, of today and the background to this little series that we're going to, we're going to run through. Next week we're thinking 
how lost really are lost people. Theologically, what does lostness actually mean? Because clearly in the Bible, lostness is something that God gave his son to deal with. It's, it's serious. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray for our own relatives, blood relatives, who don't know you. And Lord, so many of us have got, right now, faces and friends appearing before us. And Lord, they they still live in blindness and rebellion. And you promised that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict, to regenerate. Lord, so work in us that we become cleaner channels. So work in our own families. May our our words and our lives speak much. And Lord, you speak into places where our words can never go. Lord, may there be, in the course of the coming years, that joy in heaven as some of our relatives and workmates turn to you and open up their clenched fists and those hands are so empty and dry. Pour in your blessing as they open up, we do ask. Oh God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. Help us, Lord, as a church, as a people, to lay down our lives that others might hear you calling them. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.